I'm Dr. Nick Raw. Um, I am a curator of photographic collections at the University of East Anglia, based in the Sainsbury Centre for Visual Arts. I'm also co-curator of the Lines of Sight, W.G. Zabel's East Anglia, Longridge Castle Museum with Dr. Rosie Gray, and also the curator of Far Away From Where, uh, another exhibition about Zabel that was at the Sainsbury Centre of Visual Arts. And I'm joined with uh, the artist Guy Morton, who I'll let introduce himself, on our trip to Lower Stark. Thanks, Nick. Uh, I'm Guy Morton. I'm an artist. Uh, I'm also an associate professor at Selwyn University in Southampton. And my connection to Norwich Castle Museum and Art Gallery is through uh, being part of the Waterlogue exhibition. Uh, which took place in 2007, 2008, uh, which was curated by Film and Video Umbrella uh, and curated specifically by Jeremy Miller and Stephen Bode. Well, we're here today to talk about um, W.G. Zabel's The Rings of Saturn, um, which was the subject of Waterlogged as well as um, the Lines of Sight exhibition. And what's really interesting is um, whilst the Waterlogged exhibition was going on, that I was busy in my office in the Sainsbury Centre actually researching the photographs that um, Seybert had taken himself. So it was interesting that actually, having worked on this project for quite some time, that there's this kind of um, parallel histories that have come at different speeds. And so it's, um, it's what's really interesting is actually having worked on these um, projects, just um, how much the photography and informed how Seybert wrote and how the photographs um, kind of pre-exist the writing and thinking about the Rings of Saturn visually as a series of kind of performed photographic walks I think is um, an essential way to think about how it kind of gestated in his head the genesis of it which is what the exhibition at the castle is about it's not a kind of um, the book laid bare on the wall it's about thinking about that moment where all the materials in his head floating around like the rocks in the rings of Saturn mm -hmm. so it'd be interesting to go back to lower stuff today absolutely and look through it absolutely and there's something about for me there's something about the collections of, of images that Seybold worked with, um, how images are on the one hand sort of elusive, um, they're fragments of time past and indeed perhaps time present and you know an imaginary time in the future. Um, and I really sense through walking around this exhibition a couple of times, or rather two visits, uh, I sense this sort of fragmentary idea that um, W.G. Seybold had pulled together um, and sort of curated in the Rings of Saturn. Well, see, I think it's quite appropriate while sitting on the train waiting to go to the other store and looking at the photographs that we used for the, um, he used for our still is, which we used for the other exhibition, was actually how much trains and public transport feature and how actually 
there are loads and loads of photographs that he took from the train windows, um, especially as the works um, got on, especially for Auslitz and these other projects. And it, it gives you a kind of a different sense of um, what the photographs are doing and what they were for and what they represented rather than someone just standing still and taking a stand. This is, this is very much like a landscape from a train window is something to be kind of watched rather than just looked at. You look for things to go on and they have a kind of a narrative into them. you say kind of fragments of moving images there's that formative notion of it which is really integral and it's understanding that the photographs that appear in the book and the ones who don't appear in the book and the landscapes he evokes in the writing are landscapes that are watched rather than just seen and looked at yeah, absolutely which reminds me a lot of your work of course from their long exposure times mm. large formats mm. And there is that kind of like a different way of thinking with photographs. Yeah. I, you know, one of my favourite um, uh, aspects of the train journey is, of course, staring out of the window. And I think everyone sort of um, everyone experiences that sense of being part of both a larger sense of time, a sort of time unknown and this sort of time capsule of the journey itself and I think uh, I think Max Seybold has both transcribed and arguably transposed those sorts of ideas through through the very clever uh, use of images in the rings of Saturn um, just in terms of my own photographic practice uh, you mentioned the large format camera you know it, it is a very it, it's it's a system which is um, which is ancient relatively speaking it's a, it's a sort of 19th century photographic practice um, and it's a process that I'm drawn to because it distills I feel it distills time in a sense mm. that when I'm looking through the ground glass of the camera, which is very different to uh, Seybold's use of a Olympus or Sony or whatever it was, a, a sort of handheld 35mm camera. The inverted image of those landscapes um, are distillations of both time and memory. You know, I yeah. feel that they are and in fact, the, the Rings of Saturn starts with the um, train journey from, well, it starts with him remembering the train journey he took the year previously whilst in the hospital in North of Norwich. And the train journey has this symbolic um, moving back in time. It's a journey, not just from Norwich to Lowestoft, but a journey back mm. in time. Mm. And there's these um, beautiful descriptions as he goes past, which we'll see later of the, the rushes and the reed beds. And you have this notion of this, um, like in um, 
ancient Egypt of the going through the reeds and the rushes to the realm of the dead. Yeah. And it's interesting that where he stops, first of all, is in Samaleton, which is on this kind of yeah. tipping point between the past and the present, yeah. where the bits have, haven't quite made it to one or the other, yeah. just kind of... Yeah. So. He, he also, I mean, in, in that little passage, that description, he starts off in that wonderful style. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to do a to delay to lower stop. Perfect. Um, so it's wasted. Always waiting. Always waiting. Yeah. Waiting for the signal to begin from the signal, and we've been told to wait. Unfortunately, I have no information as to why. If I get some more information, we'll be get the green signal. Then obviously we shall get. So an existential delay. It is an existential delay. But I think it's, it's, it's interesting that there is a waiting, isn't there, in in the photography, the emptiness in the photography. Yeah. Especially the landscapes that are empty, and they're empty, but with a kind of a, a, a pregnant potential of like you're waiting mm. for that figure to appear or bird yeah. to fly across. Yeah, I was just thinking about that, that passage also that, that what Sable does in his writing uh, so uh, eloquently is describe atmosphere. And I think I talked a little bit about this um, at Norwich Castle Museum. Um, both in the train journey in this sort of slightly sort of melancholic way that we're we're kind of surrounded by diesel fumes, which we might be today if we're lucky, <coughs> if we ever get moving. Yeah, today. it's filling um, up. Yeah. Um, so one is sort of automatically, you know, sensing um, a sort of looking out at something through a fog or a mist, um, and the go that the travelling through. The reeds and the, the the description of windmills reminded me of Caspar uh, David Friedrich's early 19th century painting somewhere in Germany of windmills with white sails, mm. and there was something of a sort of Friedrich-esque melancholy I, I found in in that description. It, I'm sure it's very possible that Segal would have been familiar with. Yeah, he was. Um going through the material, the archive material, he was amassing. Um, he was, there's lots of um, slides of Friedrich paintings. Really? There's okay. the, uh, the one that's tied to escape me of the, of the man just looking on the edge of the forest. And, that. and the forest as it is, yeah. is absolutely identified with the past. Yeah. But also a kind yeah. of a dread about remembering the past. As Sharma does as well. Yeah, and in yeah. fact, Landscape yeah. of Memories, yeah. uh, there's lots of photocopies from the book in his materials. Really? Yeah. Where the Casper yeah. the, the, um, paintings are reproduced, so yeah. I think maybe yeah. his slides were taken from that. Huh. And it reminds you, of course, that of course he's whilst doing this work, he's teaching. Yes. He does the trips in the summer during the vacation. Yes. If it's not, it's during the winter, the Christmas period coming up. The yeah. bit where he goes to see Michael Hamburg, or is it like January? Yeah. So it's that kind yeah. of at the periphery of the academic year, as much as his work is on the yeah. periphery of being a. I'm glad it's not just W. Sable yeah. that was trying to fit everything in yeah. around the academic. The, the jigsaw, the yeah. jigsaw of yeah. having a career yeah. as an academic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what's really interesting is actually is how the and what people don't usually talk about about the Rings of Session is the actually what Norwich represents in this as being at the centre. And it starts off with actually one of the most beautiful passages in the book when he's looking out over Norwich and the lights and the ambulances and that emptiness of the city. And 
you forget in all the kind of discussions of these kind of like landscapes and the, the, the fringes and the peripheries that it does start off with this kind of very evocative idea yeah. of is that from the, the hospital? Is that the image of the window? Yeah, the, yes. With, with, with the sort of um, gridded, because the grid, the grid comes up, doesn't it? It's, yeah, um, it was the bird mesh over the window. The bird stuff mesh, it. yeah. Um, because the grid, the grid itself is also a sort of mapping device. Mm. And I think that comes up further on in the book from yeah. the, the orchid, orchid mesh. Yes, um, it's radar mesh. And, and the ground glass screen of my Wister camera is of course a gridded glass screen and in so one of the in vertigo um the very the, his first um book one of the first images is um, the picture of a, a woman's face which has he's drawn the grid lines over it yeah and i was talking yeah. to um michael brandon jones who was the photographer he worked with all the images and he was saying that actually what yeah. it reminded him of was um on the enlarger when they were doing the uh, wasn't enlarger it was a um a, a copy camera, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so it would project the grid onto the images, so you yeah. could line them up. Yeah. So, and he was like saying the Sabel would come in and watch him do it. Yes. And this idea of like putting the grid on, so it's like the idea of seeing the image the right way round up with the grid on, makes you realise actually he's someone who took a, a an interest yeah. in the whole yeah. mechanics yeah. of photography, yeah. even though he gave up printing and making his own photograph as a student but it's interesting that he keeps it at arms an interested arms length yeah that is interesting there's something also about the grid which is a sort of reference to scale for me and I, I like that sort of metaphor that's played with so so that beginning passage in the rings of saturn where uh, He's describing this view out of the window in Norwich Hospital, but then quite quickly moves on to um, to remembering narratives and stories from other places and other times. So there's a different sense of scale of time, a scale of place, mm. a sense of uh, air, in fact, which sort of has no scale. I remember that that you know Roland Barthes in uh, in uh, La Chambre Claire talking uh, uh, about that that photograph that image of, of his mother in the end he says it's just it's, it's the air you know he starts to sort of talk about mourning or je pleure you know I'm, I'm mourning I'm grieving or whatever and I feel there is this sort of sense of both sort of literary scale and of kind of mapping geographical scale that immediately he starts to play with Yes, and the, and the mapping is an interesting one because actually what the what the photographs and actually the 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 rigid framework of negatives allows you to make, put the photographs in an order that actually allows us to um, work out how he took them, what order he took them, and therefore what we'll map out his plan um, of how he walked around, what order he went to visit things in, and. It's, and so you, we learn from that that actually a lot of it is, especially when he talks about dates, always uh, pretty spot on to when he was. Places of names, he kind of tweaks. The order of things he goes to tweaks, but when he talks about specifically going to a specific place, and he usually often starts with the date, 
you know, and that actually they it is usually um, correct and you know corroborated by the photographs. Something that Rosie and I have noticed is how this process of reclaiming him as a local writer is something that's very interesting, and how you know even though the, the surprise when people see the manuscript pages that we have at the exhibition being in German, and they're surprised that oh it, they just don't even see the fact that there's a translator involved because he just seems so rooted in the um, in the landscape and in the area. So it's a peculiar way of thinking about where you're from through the eyes of somewhere who clearly didn't think he belonged here but who mm. made his home here. The translations are absolutely wonderful. I'm thinking about Anthea Bell, but the translation is crucial, right? Yeah, and I think it's um it's 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 really it's really odd to think that um, Oh, he didn't translate them himself because obviously he was like very adequate in English. I could have easily done it, but this is different. You know, a, a stance he took not to do it, and, yes. he, and all his interviews, he's like saying, "Oh, I was too busy," or "My English is not good enough." But when you see the actual manuscript pages, the typescript pages, he's edited from Michael Holst, where every other word has been changed and edited again. You can see that actually, the English version isn't not his. Yeah. It's and it's not Michael Holzer's either, yeah. and yeah. so it's an interesting thing that people go, oh, well, it's not the original book. You need to read the German. That's the original, but the English version is as much his as it is Holzer's, yeah. and it's, so it's a kind of a third book. And it's a way I remember reading once that the Rings of Saturn is something you should always read in translation because it's that notion of you know being slightly apart. From the yes. immediacy yes. of it, which which you have when you're looking out of a train at a landscape, you you feel strangely removed from it. Yeah, but you have the sense of journey yeah. through it.
started first working on this many years ago at the Sainsbury Centre, there's the um, they used to have on display the um, Sugimoto seascapes, and um, and there is an I was reminded of those when I saw your work because the scale is very similar, the fixed horizon is very similar. It's bossy yours of colour and his um, very legend grey, but it, what it reminded me of was the fact that there are a few occasions where you can just stop and look at something without people thinking you're having some form of like neurotic epi psychotic <laughs> episode. You know, if you can you can yeah. stop and look in front of a painting and people it's normal. You can stop and look at, you know, a fire, a bonfire and it's normal and staring out to sea is so culturally um, you know you know received that you can just stare. People can, you go, you go on holiday just to sit down and to stare at a landscape, to watch a landscape, which is actually something that, it's interesting that you go on holiday to do these things and yet they're seen as not normal in everyday life. Yes. And of course you have that strange, um, these strange places where it's acceptable and I, looking at Sabar's photographs of Lowestoft, he's, he's clearly fascinated with like the English um, kind of obsession with beach huts and having them as these little temporary houses <coughs> on the edges of things. Yeah. And there's photographs he's taking kind of like surreptitiously of people filling up their kettles and you know, the old couple sitting on um, deck chairs staring out to sea. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you just did that in the centre of Norwich, it'd be an issue if you just got a deck chair out and just started staring, <laughs> staring at a grassy bank by a roundabout. Yeah, but yeah. it's... I, th I think, um, in a way, in the ways of Saturn, Seaboard invites us to, uh, much of the time, to, to stare out to sea. making the work for uh, Waterlog, um, I spent uh, a few days with uh, Alec Finley and Marcus Coates, I think, um, staying in Dunwich and, you know, we were there to sort of, um, to sort of draw out the atmosphere of Dunwich and try to, to work together on, on the show. So the obvious, the obvious sort of thing that everybody does, of course, walking on Dunwich Beach is to stare out to sea, right? And we do that in South Southwold as well. Um, I, I felt I wanted to turn my back on the sea at that point. I felt Sable does it so well. He he not only looks out to sea, but he sort of looks he looks out to the German Ocean. You know, it's not just the North Sea; it's the Norwegian Sea, it's the German Ocean. It has these different sort of cultural identities and I think that's really crucial and I think you're absolutely right when we when we you know when the English go to the seaside and sit in beach huts on grey miserable days they you know they, they're sort of contemplating the horizon or they're looking out to sea or they're they're aware of the tidal the tidal range for example think about Whitstable here which is um, mm -hmm. on the Thames estuary and the sea disappears completely when it's sort of drawn out with the tide. My photographs, I wanted to, to sort of turn, turn towards the landscape. And so these landscapes, which are sort of thresholds, in a way they're thresholds of, of 
both contemplation of sort of a dreamscape, which I, which is also a kind of prevalent theme, I think. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's interesting as well the 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 idea of dreaming and being on boats and ships and being on the sea is something that kind of um, he uses a lot in the emigrants, where every dream he has seems to be of him being on board ship. And um, there's a lot of um, cross-channel activity in that book. But what's interesting going through this landscape here um, is actually it becomes less defined, isn't it, where it becomes, you know, where the land is, where the water is, which is something he talks about a lot and addresses a lot in his poetry, which is a much more kind of... Um, has a lot less of a definite sense of um, place and time than his prose. But going through this landscape and him talking about the greenness of it and the, the fixed horizon and the, the water yeah. being on the same level, which is very different from when you go to, um, say, like um, in the Netherlands. It's a much more managed landscape. Yeah. And so even though, you know, he talks about going past the derelict ruins of the wind pumps, you know, there's a point there being that they are derelict, mm. which is something obviously the, um, the Dutch would never let happen. Quite something. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, looking out the window here now, it and it's like, yeah. you know, these aren't roads we're looking at, are they? They're kind of like huge drainage channels holding the water. I'm going to do a photograph on my iPhone looking out at the window of the of the train to the flooded marshes. Um, when I was a student in Norwich, I spent some time in the Netherlands, uh, in Rotterdam, uh, and actually lived in Rotterdam, let me think, in uh, 1999 for four months on an artist residency. Um, and I was really drawn to I was talking to Rosie about this. Uh, I was really drawn to these uh, collections of, of course, of 17th century Dutch paintings in the Boymans van Buningen Museum in Rotterdam, um, of which the names I can not remember now. But uh, th these paintings, I mean, some of them certainly, um, which are sort of constructed landscapes. Uh, and often feature in the distance an image of water. So I'm thinking about, I think, um, Adrian van Oosterde, if I can pronounce that correctly, um, where the image of a sort of glimpse of the North Sea or uh, a, a windmill or, you know, a sort of gesture of water appears. And I felt that that time in Holland felt sort of appropriate for me to try to bring that back into uh, into the photographs that I made. Of course, the photographs that I made are analog. They're not uh, they're not constructed in that sense. But there is something about the sort of um, about the ruination <coughs> in landscape, particularly in these sort of you know the, the windmills and in. Uh, uh, Orford nest that Sebold plays with, I mean, plays with in the sense of, you know, it appears in his writing consistently, I'd say, in this sort of entropic sense of um, falling apart. Yeah, absolutely. And then there's the storm in 
in um, Rendlesham Forest as well, which is, um, he talks about the world disintegrating into a dust storm. But what I think when it's he, is it, sorry. No, I was gonna say, it's, it's also that, that point on Dunwich Heath where, where he's sort of, you know, uh, um, lost. So it's not just the yeah, sort of storm. Yeah, and there's another delirium the, opium exactly, dream exactly, with exactly, its pagoda exactly, at the middle of it. Exactly. So it's exactly. interesting how those, those, those the, the pagodas kind of like keep propping up as an, an indicative of dream sequences. Yeah. But what was, it's, what's interesting on our, <coughs> as we crawl towards lower stop is the interesting way in which actually when he reaches a destination, the first thing he does, going back to what you're saying, is kind of turn his back on it and start to think about somewhere else. Um, when he gets to Southfold. Canley. But it's interesting actually when he talks about Canley and sugar and how something as everyday and mundane of um, you know sugar actually has a kind of a dark yeah. darkness to it. You can't see it, uh, Nick, but ahead of us is sunlight. Sun, oh, you know, yeah. <coughs> the clouds are lifting. Yeah, we were hoping for a hearse to uh, you know to pull up outside the, the, the station when we arrived there so it's we're just organizing that for you it's actually surprising the station hasn't changed at all okay. and um and i think it's, it's only just now being refurbished i think so okay that's a shame yeah, yeah. Uh, you know they do it sympathetically yeah. what's interesting is when you when i when you get off the train at lower staff there's the plaque there for the kinder transports is there? So that's um, that's another kind of intro when you think about Auschwitz later. Yeah. And it's obviously something that wasn't there yeah. when he was there and yeah. when he does this journey in 1992. Yeah. But you have once again this idea of this being these landscapes that are feel so far removed from yeah. the big things in history. You know, yeah. it feels so far removed about you know from the bombing of Berlin or you know the fall of the Third Reich or the yeah. liberation of Paris and all these great things that children continuously have to learn at school parent yeah. fashion yeah. yeah he shows with just kind of just one conversation how it's it's not just closer than you think that actually there is no where else you actually are part of it isn't there there is no no other where nowhere else yeah you know with the bombers going over that's right with the the, the train right. station as part of the kids transport yeah. you have you know yeah. the, the little chinese railway that are, it's just this little yeah. tiny branch line that connects you directly into the yeah. the darkness that yeah. is at the heart of the British Empire. Yeah. Yeah. Where where the massacres are so enormous that they just become these just random numbers like yeah. the distance to Saturn. You know? yeah. But and it's just there. I mean it's just not that it's hidden. It's just that we choose like a landscape that you turn your back on. Yeah, absolutely. So, as we pull into Lowestoft Station, the, um, the end of our conversation, but the beginning of Seybelt's journey along the coast, it's time to say thank you to Guy for joining me on this English pilgrimage. Thank you, Nick, for allowing me to, to listen to you and speak with you. <laughs>